Episode 127, Winter of Discontent. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a February 23rd, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Find strength in pain And I will change my ways I'll know my name as it's cold again On March 26th, 1931, the people of Dighton, Kansas woke to a warm and rainy morning. By evening, snowdrifts were piling ten feet high and the town was slammed by a freak blizzard. The event led to harrowing stories of survival, but no story is more tragic than that of Dean Thomas. Join Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin and me as we examine a pair of child's overalls that belong to a 10-year-old Dean Thomas, whose untimely death was connected to the storm in an unusual way. Then, we go behind the scenes with curators to find vanished artifacts from Kansas history. The Historical Society has been collecting artifacts since shortly after the Civil War, but some of the state's most significant artifacts never made it to the museum. See if curators know their whereabouts. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the Eiffel Tower, an architectural icon of Paris, France. Did White once tell Gustav Eiffel, yeah, you're good at bridges, but can you do towers? Find out if White was bad with theirs when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, winter of discontent. Good morning, Rebecca. Hi, Merle. Today, we are going to talk about a massive snowstorm that devastated western Kansas in the 1930s. And we're going to do it by looking at a little boy's set of overalls. Uh, these dark blue denim overalls belong to a young boy named Dean Thomas. Um, so let's start out. The story revolves around the Thomas family of Dighton, Kansas. Uh, who were the Thomases, and how were they faring in the, in the little town of Dighton in 1931? The Thomases uh, lived out in western Kansas, which is near a little town called Dighton. Um, and Dighton is on the short grass prairie high plains um, even today, it's pretty desolate. Um, by by frontier standards, it's it's a modern day frontier because today there are less than six square people per mile in Dighton, Kansas. This and is this is the part where uh, explorer Fremont called the Great American Desert, right? Yeah, and it, I know a lot of people have that perception of it today, and it is. Uh, sparsely populated today, but there's a lot of beauty in the prairie, and a lot of people sure. came there around the time the Thomases did, around 1900, 1920, because of the land. So uh, Daniel Thomas and his wife, Letha, settled on a little farm southeast of Dighton, which is 
pretty extreme western Kansas, and they began to farm. Um, we know a little bit about them from the census records. They had six children, they owned their own home, they farmed, and they had a radio, which is kind of important when you're thinking about what follows and what the story is about, which is a blizzard. Um, the stock market crash had just happened a couple of years earlier. Uh, times were tough for everybody, especially rural people. Um, the Dust Bowl hadn't hit yet, so they were still able to farm and uh, make a living and, and make a lot, probably uh, provide a lot of their own food off the farm. For residents of Dayton, March 26, 1931, began warm and rainy uh, with almost a springtime feel to it. But the day didn't end up that way, no, did it? No, no, it didn't. Um, what, uh, what happened? How'd the weather change that day? Well, people said that, I mean, you read reminiscences of this storm, it started warm like you said, and it's late March. Spring is already underway. They've had a hard winter. They had a lot of snow that winter. Um, and the day is cloudy and misty, but yeah, like 60 degrees. So everybody's thinking, this is great. It's gonna be a wonderful spring day. A lot of the farmers and ranchers turn their cattle out from their stockyards out onto the prairie, onto the free range to get some of the fresh new grass that exactly. was coming up. Um, there's no weather forecast at this time telling no. you what the outlook's gonna be for the next. Um, Three no. to four days. No, and in fact, a lot of people who did have radios, like uh, the Thomases, complained that the radio broadcasts were really intermittent out there. They're really pretty far out from any city, big city. You were fortunate to get a signal, and even if it did, yeah. you were probably getting the weather update of what was going on hundreds of miles away in Wichita. Exactly. And people knew that there was a blizzard coming if they were in urban areas. They were warned of it. But these people, probably not. And in fact, many of the people out in the Western Plains didn't know that this storm was coming. Um, so the day dawns really nice and it starts to get a little colder and a little colder and a little windier. And about noon is when the first flakes started to fall and they picked up in intensity and um, they became, they moved from really big fluffy flakes to very fine particles. People described it being like sawdust. And by the end of the day, it was a full-blown blizzard and nobody could travel in it. How does a storm of this magnitude play out in western Kansas in the 1930s? I mean, by even today's standards, it's an isolated region, mm -hmm. as in it's not hugely populated. But in the 1930s, it was also not hugely populated, and you didn't have wireless internet, and you, uh, you, know, you didn't have telephone lines. Yeah, you couldn't communicate. Not a whole lot of telephone lines. So... But what happens when you blanket the whole area with a huge snowstorm? Yeah, communication just ceases, and and you don't know where your friends and family are. Did they, you know, if they were out on the fields, did they make it home? Did they make it to a neighbor's house? Um, when a blizzard strikes, even today in that region, you can't see three feet in front of you, right, Merle? I mean, right, it's, you it, it's the wind. People don't really understand how bad the wind gets out there. There's nothing to stop it. And this storm had just screaming winds, 20 to 25 miles an hour, very fine snow. And the accounts of people out in it said there would be parts where the land was literally scoured. You could, you could, it was white, but there wasn't much snow. And wherever there was a dip in the road or a creek bed, it filled with snow. So you could have, you know, let's say five to six inches of snow on the ground. You'd be walking along, and you'd, 
or driving along and you'd be in a snowdrift that was literally 10 feet deep or more. So um, what one thing they had going for them in those days, though, was people still had a lot of horses that they could ride. And where cars couldn't get through this snowstorm and because of the drifts, the horses actually could get through or go around a lot easier. That day, young Dean Thomas, uh, who, is the, who is the boy that wore the overalls we're looking at, he began to feel a little ill. What was wrong with Dean and what could be done? Because the boy, he picked the wrong day yeah. to come down with something. Poor Dean, of all the unfortunate timing. Um, the very first evening of the storm, Dean came down with appendicitis. Um, and uh, his family was able to get him into... He's, he's a 10-year-old he's boy, 10 right? years He's 10 years old. He's the oldest son of the Thomas children. Thomas has had six kids. Uh, they were able to get him into town from the farm, and the doctor there, apparently in town, recognized that Dean had appendicitis, and he knew, we've got to get this child to a hospital. Well, the closest hospital was 50 miles away in Garden City. And the doctor, you know, put him in his car. He probably had some big old Chrysler or something. Sure. Um, got him in the car, and they made it just to the western edge of town, and they got stuck in a snowdrift. And uh, apparently the storm was so severe that in the two blocks that they walked, they carried Dean, the doctor, the parents, and uh, the driver, walked from the car back into town. In two blocks, they got frostbite. So Dean was stuck there. They tried to pull uh, the car out of the drift with a tow truck, and the tow truck got stuck in a 10-foot deep drift, 10-foot deep. I mean, there was just no human, humanly possible way to get Dean to a hospital. Yeah, I mean, that's futile. If your car is getting stuck on the outskirts of town and you still have 50 miles 50 to miles, go, yeah. They, so they tried happen. really hard to get him on the road and, you know, get him get him to help, but it just didn't happen. And so, of course, Dean's appendix burst uh, while he was at his grandparents' house in Dighton. Um, and unfortunately, um, that must have been a really, really traumatic time for his mother um, and father because they couldn't do anything. They were stuck you know, in somebody else's house during one of the worst blizzards in 50 years, and there was nothing they could possibly do. And they were watching their oldest son die of yeah. what is typically a curable situation. Yeah, yeah. If they had only been able to get him to a hospital. Um, after the storm died down, which was about two or three days, I mean, accounts vary, they eventually were able to get him to Garden City. They got him to a hospital in Garden City, and the uh, doctors, the surgeons there, operated on him, and unfortunately, Dean didn't make it. He right. died a couple of days later um, because peritonitis had set in, and that's a very common That's the infection related to a burst, to a burst appendix. appendix, yeah. The overalls, uh, like we said, belong to this little boy, and typically overalls of a 10-year-old boy uh, have completely worn knees, uh, bleached out. Um, these are pristine. And that relates to how Dean's mother dealt with his death. Mm -hmm. How did she deal with it? Um, how did she deal with it? And do you think that the kind of prolonged helplessness related to his death, I mean, it's kind of a three-day mm -hmm. situation where they watch this, do you think that impacted her reaction? I think it had to. It had to really affect her. Um, um, clearly, it had a major effect on her because she set aside a lot of material that belonged to Dean after his death, not just these overalls. And we also have a picture of the shirt that he wore. Um, and, and the overalls were worn, but they're not 
overly worn. They're not worn out. So this must have been his good pair of overalls. Because overalls, you would have worn them almost everywhere out in there. That, that right there, like, makes it even more sad. Yeah, uh, it's <laughs> just... They were his good overalls. And the story just gets worse because, I mean, it's it's a great thing for a museum to have this collection, but it just, I think it tugs at everyone's heartstrings when we talk about this because his mother saved his toys. We've got a hand puppet and some other toys, a harmonica he played. Um, we have his, uh, he was a really good student, apparently. Yeah, we have his report cards. Report cards. He got great and he got, he got awards for, I think it was good attendance. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and also this always gets to me too. She saved the deed for his cemetery plot. I mean, it's uh. just it's just terrible to to contemplate what the poor woman, the whole family must have been going through. Um and she set it all aside and it passed down to us through two generations, I think, before it finally was donated to us fairly recently. Um, by a family member who never knew Dean and, you know, knew a little bit about him, but um, you just think about that when you have something like that, a little snapshot of a person's life and um, you don't know the person. What are you going to do with it? Well, in this case, making sure that it got preserved at a museum was a really great thing. All right, Rebecca, thanks for telling us about this storm and thanks for telling us about um, this young boy's overalls. You're welcome. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces. Just a few days after the great blizzard of 1931, while people in western Kansas were still digging out, and on the very day little Dean Thomas died, in eastern Kansas a small aircraft suddenly lost one of its wings in mid-flight. The plane plummeted to earth near the town of Bazaar, killing everyone aboard. Among the passengers was one of the greatest coaches in college football history. Who was he? No tomorrow. To commemorate the sesquicentennial anniversary of Kansas, the museum opened the exhibit 150 Things I Love About Kansas, which highlights significant artifacts from the state's history. Yet, not all the good stuff is there. Some objects, like the Topeka Constitution, vanished from sight years ago and have yet to be found. Hear what curators have to say about Kansas's most famous missing things. Today we are talking about great vanished objects of Kansas history. Joining me today is curators Blair Tarr and Laurel Fritsch. Hello. Hello. Museum Director Bob Keckeisen. Hi. And Assistant Director Rebecca Martin. Howdy. Every day, each of you use artifacts to tell the story of Kansas history. But parts of the story are missing because some artifacts never made it to the museum. In fact, we don't know where some artifacts in Kansas history are. I'd like you to tell our listeners um, about one object that you know once existed, but is a mystery or where it's at today, or it's not accessible for some reason today. Make sense? Sure. Yes. All right. Okay. Uh, so we'll start with Bob. Okay. Bob, what's your artifact? My artifact in honor of the upcoming Academy Awards season is Hattie McDaniel's Academy Award. Ah, yes. Okay, now Hattie McDaniel was the first African American to win an Oscar uh, from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And I'm pretty sure everybody knows this, but just in case you don't, she won Best Supporting Actress for her portrayal of Mammy in the 1939 blockbuster Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. And the reason she's a big deal to Kansas is she was born in Wichita. 
So okay. we claim her as a Kansan. She was mm-hmm. born in Wichita in 1895. And she got the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, and nobody knows where it is. Now, that's not to say we ever had it, or maybe should have had it, but her Academy Award is gone. So it just vanished at some point. Yeah, and we know she had it because after her death, and she unfortunately died rather young. She was born in 1895, uh, passed away uh, complications of breast cancer in 1952. And in her will, she left her award to Howard University, which is a very uh, highly regarded historically um, black university. It's located in Washington, D.C. And according to some, it went missing during racial unrests on the campus in the 1960s. Uh, Because at that time, there were a lot of blacks that denounced performances like Hattie McDaniels and Gone with the Wind. Um, They said they perpetuated black stereotypes. They played, you know, Uncle Toms and Mm -hmm. just servants and foolish people. And there's a great quote, though. Hattie McDaniel always had a great comeback for that. Uh, when she got accused of playing these demeaning characters. And she said, well, I'd rather play a maid for $700 a week than be one for $7 a week. Nice. (laughs) Um, So where do you suspect that it's at now? Well, having worked on the campus of a couple of large universities, Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure it was stolen. (laughs) You think it was just misplaced (laughs) at Howard? Some people claim that during the racial unrest, it got stolen and actually tossed into the Potomac, but nobody actually knows that. But I can absolutely see this happening. Somebody goes to remodel the theater lobby. If people are looking for her award and they're looking for an Oscar statue, they're going to be sadly mistaken because she never got a statue, she got a plaque. Oh. Because it was supporting actors. It's supporting actors, and that's not a racial thing. It's uh, she didn't get a plaque because you know she was uh, um, uh, black. She got a plaque because until 1943, supporting actors and actresses got a plaque. They didn't mm-hmm. actually get a statue. So you can imagine. I wonder yeah, if they told to Howard University that. Maybe they're looking for the wrong thing. No, they know it's a plaque because oh. they've got students and a former theater professor there that remember seeing it in this case in the late 1960s. Well, it's gone now. Well, I could see, you know, somebody remodels a plaque, probably looks like a whole lot of other plaques. I'll bet it's in a box somewhere in a storage room, and they just haven't found it yet. Excellent. I hope. <laughs> I hope that's the reason. So. All right, Laurel, uh, what is your object? Well, I would really love it if we had one of Wyatt Earp's Marshall badges from either his time when he was in Wichita or in Dodge City. Um, and for those of you who might not be familiar with Wyatt Earp, he's a famous lawman in Kansas's Wild West days, which was just after the Civil War in the 1870s or so. And so I, I think not only would it be great to have one of his badges, but also one of his guns from some of the incidents that he was involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, but where they are today, I have no idea. Um, Any idea what happened to his estate after he passed? Well, he ended up dying in California in, I think it was L.A., which is quite unusual. Um, so I, I honestly, I don't know where it could be. Um, for all I know, it's buried, still buried in the dirt and the dust of Dodge City, which is actually kind of romantic to think about, that um, some little kid in their backyard could be digging a hole and then, oh my God, it's Wyatt Earp's Marshall Bash. We're not uh, encouraging people to go dig no, a hole. No, 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 don't do that. It probably blew into Nebraska during the Dust Bowl. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. 
All right, Rebecca, what is your uh, missing object? Mine is the first printing press ever used in Kansas, and it was brought here in the 1830s by a Baptist missionary named Jotham Meeker, and Meeker used it to print lots of works in 10 different American Indian languages, um, including, and this is what's really cool about it, the first newspaper written in t or printed entirely in a native language in the United States. Wow. And that would be really, it was in the Shawnee language, and that would be really cool to have that printing press. So he was printing all that stuff in, where at in Kansas? In northeast Kansas, far northeast around the, um, there was a Baptist mission basically inside today's Kansas City, Kansas. So he obviously had a printer. Any idea what happened to that print, that, that printer? Well, yeah, um, the press is has a really interesting history. It was last seen, last confirmed having been seen in Lawrence, Kansas. Um, the missionaries sold it to the, the man who published the Herald of Freedom, which was this really famous abolitionist newspaper in Lawrence. And apparently during Quantrill's raid in the Civil War, the press got thrown out of the second story window of the, Heritage, Her, uh, the Herald of Freedom offices and then thrown into the Kansas River. Do you, do you see a theme, though? <laughs> yeah, objects? river, I know. They're all at the bottom of a river somewhere. <laughs> That's why they're missing. Um, and anyway, the, the really cool thing about this was uh, the stories that thereafter, it gets really murky what's happened to the press. I mean, there were claims that it got sold to somebody else, and there are at least 10 Kansas towns that claimed that this press had a life in the town's publishing newspapers all over the place. Cottonwood Falls, Dodge City, Wichita, Winfield, and towns in Missouri and Oklahoma. And and at one time it was allegedly in three places simultaneously. <laughs> and also, this is what I love too, um, uh, that at one time uh, somebody actually claimed that it had been thrown into the Missouri and the Meridazine rivers also. So it had three so rivers. Had three rivers and maybe at the <laughs> yeah. bottom. Yeah. And all of them, all of those uh, alleged acts against the press were done by pro-slavery mm -hmm. parties. You know, it's kind of, it's, they were gay in Kansas to blame some tragedy on pro-slavery people from Missouri. So it makes sense that the press had some, some nasty thing happen to it by a pro-slavery party. Right. I think, uh, I think it's kind of insightful how many different stories of its origin there are, because that indicates how significant this was, that people, yeah. you know, people knew this particular printing press. Yeah. And wanted really to liked it or really hated yeah. it. <laughs> I, yeah. And the power that the press has still today, you don't, well, I guess papers are printed on presses, but we're going to digital. But still, it's that power that you still see in culture. Children waiting for the day they For the answer to the Kansas quiz, which famous college football coach died in a plane crash in Kansas shortly after the 1931 blizzard? It was Newt Rockne. Born in Norway and raised in Chicago, Rockne rose to fame as the head coach for the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame. Rockne's plane had just taken off from Kansas City, where his two young sons were in boarding school, when it lost a wing during flight. His death was called a national loss by the president. You can see a memorial to Rockne today on the Kansas Turnpike. Find it hard to take. The people run in circles. It's a very, very and now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Alla White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Education Specialist Abby Perone. Hi. 
Today, in the spirit of Valentine's, which was like three days ago, uh, we are connecting <laughs> William L. White to the Eiffel Tower, an icon of the most romantic city in the world, Paris. Abby, can you give us a little background on the Eiffel Tower? Sure, I can. Well, rising to a majestic 1,063 feet, the Eiffel Tower is the tallest structure in Paris and has become an international icon. French bridge engineer Gustave Eiffel, or Gustave Eiffel as we might know him, (laughs) designed the iron latticework tower for the 1889 Paris Exposition Universelle, or the World's Fair. Uh, In English. (laughs) In English, that's how we know it. Well, the construction took two years and required 300 workers to assemble the 18,038 pieces of iron and half million rivets. Upon completion, the Parisians took an eye, gazed upon the iron monstrosity, and considered it an eyesore. How ridiculous. I know. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like classic looking now, and they at first thought it was an eyesore. Uh, they just turned up their noses at mm-hmm. it, and it's probably a very classic Gallic uh, <laughs> gesture. And I'm sure there was a lot of hand gesturing. Right. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm gesturing right now with my hands. In Vegas, they loved their Eiffel Tower there. <laughs> Well, regardless of what the Parisians in 1889 thought of it, um, it's proved to be an architectural tour de force, drawing visitors from around the world. Uh, During World War I, the tower was used to jam German radio transmissions, and during the occupation of World War II, maintenance workers took steps to prevent Hitler from ascending the now sacred structure. So it's really played a historic role as well. Yeah. They, the, the, the Parisians say that he, he took France, or he took Paris, but he never took the Eiffel Tower. Mm-hmm. Well, when it was constructed, the Eiffel Tower surpassed even the Washington Monument as the tallest building in the world. And uh, today, it's really considered to be an engineering marvel of the industrial age. Right, and I think it was really um, when uh, Gustav Eiffel, <laughs> fancy way, uh, when he built it, it was only supposed to be up for like twenty years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very temporary structure, and it was supposed to come down after twenty years. Yeah, but uh, I guess it did not. Nope, still there. It's nice. still there. I think All it's right. been a few more years than that. Thank you, Abby, <laughs> Nikayla. I believe you have a solution. We. Oui. I do. (laughs) Um, So, as Abby mentioned, the Eiffel Tower was originally thought to be an eyesore by the people of Paris, crazy Parisians. Um, In 1892, a group of Parisians sent a letter to a Paris newspaper stating their displeasure at the sight of the tower. And among the signees was the author Guy de Maupassant. I'm sorry, what's that? <laughs> you make me say it again. you got to say it in Kansan now. <laughs> it's Guy de Maupassant. If you're <laughs> um, so um, Guy de Maupassant is said to have eaten lunch every day, lunch or dinner every day in the Eiffel Tower because it was the only place in Paris you couldn't see the tower. <laughs> I love that. I love that statement. Wow. He hated it he so hated much that it. he ate it there because that was the only place you couldn't see it. Couldn't see it, yeah. Guy de Maupassant was one of William Allen White's influences when he started writing stories. Um, he specifically cited him in reference to um, his book of short stories entitled The Real Issue. And this was probably in part because Maupassant is often considered one of the fathers of the modern short story. Mm-hmm. And we also have to note that William Allen White visited France 
a lot. Right. He was there at least three times. And the first time uh, was in 1909 when he took his whole family, his wife and children, and his mother. And um, while they were in Paris, he wrote for several weeks. We radiated from there and did all the tourist things indicated in the guidebook. Right. And there is, there's nothing more tourist than going to the Eiffel Tower yeah. when and in Paris. Also, 1909 would have been the year they were supposed to tear it down. So, so you think he was he was showing up there to see it before it got torn down? No, I don't think necessarily, but it would make sense that if they're going to tear it down, you'd be like, yeah, maybe we should go see that, see that before, <laughs> before they tear it down. Before it's dismantled. Exactly. And then he was back again uh, during World War One. He was a correspondent for the Red Cross. Mm-hmm. And then he was there again for the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. Mm-hmm. So. Oh. Which most of the residents mm-hmm. lived in Paris, mm-hmm. uh, especially the correspondents lived in neighborhoods in Paris. Right. So he was there for several weeks. Right. And even if he didn't actually go up into the Eiffel Tower, I'm sure his your high, your eyes would have had to gaze upon it when in Paris. Because, you know, where in yeah. Paris can you be and not turn yeah, around somewhere yeah. and see it? Well, and he took, uh, like, the boat rides down the Seine. That goes mm-hmm. right by the Eiffel Tower. There's no way he could have <laughs> he missed it. Have missed Unless it. he was intentionally hiding his eyes or something. He was horrified by its sight. Right. No, <laughs> only the Parisians would hide their eyes from it. <laughs> It's only the Americans <laughs> that look at it and crazy, get all excited. Crazy boys from Emporia who are like, wow, that's really tall. <laughs> all right, impressive, Nikayla. Abby, would you like to introduce the challenge for the next episode? Sure. Well, for the next episode, we grab hold of our buckled shoes and our pots of gold, and we head off to Ireland. In the spirit of St. Patrick's Day, we attempt to connect William Allen White to the Blarney Castle. Located in Southern Ireland, the ancient fortification was built in the 1400s and now, and has always housed the legendary Blarney Stone, which can invest a kissing visitor with the power of charismatic speech. Mm, and an illness, more than likely. Right, because yeah. everybody else has kissed it before you. <laughs> yes. You well. may contract some ancient medieval disease. Like the plague? Can <laughs> we get the plague here? Well, I do know that one of our staff members has kissed the Blarney Stone, and oh. she... Um, seem to have come back unscathed. She made it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Thank Maybe God. you should take like a, a sanitizing wipe. You know, like <laughs> I want to hand that to you. <laughs> <laughs> they give you a squeeze of hand sanitizer gel before you go. Yeah. And then you can rinse with it. So. <laughs> All right. So join us next time when we connect William Allen White to the Blarney Castle of Ireland. Did White once kiss the Blarney Stone to rid himself of a bad case of writer's block? Find out <laughs> in two weeks. But Includes episode 127, Winter of Discontent. If you would like to see images of young Dean Thomas's rarely worn overalls, just go to our website. While there, be sure to fill out a podcast survey, or better yet, find us on Facebook by searching for Kansas Historical Society. In the next episode, Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and I examine a set of stonemason's tools used by a young Swedish immigrant to build the most important structure in Kansas, the State House. Shortly after young Nels Ferguson helped build the People's House, he traveled to Republic County, Kansas to build his own. Come back in two weeks when we find out what it takes to build a massive stone structure in an age of horses. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Real people, real stories.